Welcome to Now on Netflix, the podcast version of your friend with really good taste who's going to tell you if there's something coming up that you must be watching. I'm Jessica Shaw. I'm a host on Sirius XM and an obsessive selling sunset watcher. A little bit later, I'm going to be talking to John DeLillo all about the killer, the David Fincher movie. But the man with the real taste is the editor of Tudoom.com, and he's Henry Goldblatt. Joining Henry is Leora Yashari, an editor at Tudoom.com as well and an expert in all things geek. Hey guys. Hey. Hey. We are in the midst of Geek Week right now, November 6th to the 12th for the third year in a row. Leora, what is Geek Week and what was the big news coming out of this week? So this week is really exciting week of announcements from a lot of our genre and animated and action titles. And we have announcements coming out of Umbrella Academy, Squid Game, The Challenge, Three Body Problem, Leave the World Behind, and an entire day dedicated to Rebel Moon on Sunday. So stay tuned for some fun news. And during Geeked Week, we're going to have a bunch of fun activations. We are doing free tattoos at certain cities across the U.S. There's trivia nights at other cities. We also have three showcases, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, followed by our Rebel Moon Day. And in those showcases, you're going to get previews of all these really exciting titles, some you know, directors talking directly to fans about what they can expect from new seasons, some new announcements of new titles. So it's pretty much our biggest week ever if you're a Netflix geek. Um, Leora, I need to just go back to your comment that you're offering free tattoos. Are those like Cracker Jacks box tattoos? This week right now, you can sign up in various cities, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York. We have a couple of tattoo shops that are giving away free tattoos related to your favorite geeked titles. So if you are dying to have a custom Stranger Things tattoo, we are offering that. But these are permanent tattoos. They are not temporary tattoos. They're very real. They're at tattoo shops and you have to be 18 and older to sign up. Wow. That is for super fans. I love it. Yes. Fandom is forever, especially at Netflix. Leora, what was the biggest thing for you in Geeked Week? I mean, Rebel Moon has been really exciting. We have a lot of fun stuff coming out. Earlier this week was Stranger Things Day. So we got a bunch of really great announcements coming out of that. A lot of hype for the upcoming season. A couple of other ones we're excited about. Three Body Problem is coming up. We have Blue Eye Samurai, and those are some really fun ones that I know our audience is going to love. Yeah, Henry, Stranger Things Day was on November 6th, as it always is, because of course, November 6th, 1983, young Will Byers went missing in Hawkins, Indiana, and, you know, over the course of many seasons. Uh, Henry, how did you celebrate Stranger Things Day? I celebrated it in many ways, but Jessica, I want to back up for a second because it is so obvious to me that Stranger Things Day is a Scorpio. Um, it is November 6th. It's in the middle of Scorpio season. Like, it is moody. It is mysterious. It holds a grudge like nobody's business. And there we are for Stranger Things Day, smack in the middle of Scorpio season. But at Tudum, we celebrated in many, many ways. First of all, we have some scoop on Stranger Things, the first shadow play that's happening in London that is written by the Duffer Brothers, who are creators of Stranger 
things. And as well, directed by Stephen Daltrey. And I don't need to tell you who that is, Jessica, because you are the Broadway queen. So tell everyone who that is. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Stephen Daldry is one of the great directors of all time. When I saw that he was going to be directing the show that's going to be on the West End, I, I think previews start pretty soon. And then it's going to be um, if you happen to be in London over the holidays, you know, in December. But oh, my goodness, that they got him as as a director. It's just pretty unreal. When I think about some of the films he did, he did The Reader and The Hours and Billy Elliot, and he's an executive producer of The Crown, which, you know, a little show also on Netflix. I was going to say to call it back to The Crown, which is coming back um, a little later this year on Netflix. So the play itself is a prequel to the Stranger Things series. It takes place in the late 50s, features Joyce Byers and Jim Hopper and Bob Newby and Henry Creel. And while Hop and Joyce and Bob are seniors in high school, Henry is a freshman. What struck me, and this is such an aside, Jessica, but what struck me is that the show, of course, takes place in the 80s. So, of course, like their parents would be in high school in the 50s or early 60s. But it seems like such a long time ago. I was like, wow, this really is a period piece. Well, Stranger Things, as you said, the first shadow, the the play opens December 14th, London's West End. There's the previews start on November 17th. And like you guys said, this is like, this is canon. This is actually part of the story that, that you will want to know. But there were other things about Stranger Things Day this year Oh my gosh, we got to see the first few lines of season five, which, what? That was kind of exciting. It was. Um, the episode is called The Crawl that was previously announced. And I will try my best dramatic voice. Season five, chapter one, scene one. Darkness, the sound of cold wind, groaning trees, and dot, 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 a child's voice singing a familiar song. Now, I felt that that was a little bit of an unfair cliffhanger because it's just singing a familiar song. Leora, are we supposed to know what song this is? I don't know. Is this like some 80s song? Is this Take On Me? What is happening? What is the familiar song? If we know anything about the Stranger Things team, it's that they're going to keep us guessing. But I like the idea of filling in the blanks here. Any sort of like fun 80s song that you want to put in, this could be a fun moment to have our fans interpret what they think the song is going to be. Okay, I'm going to put you both on the spot then. What's your dream song? What is your dream song for the first scene of Stranger Things, season five, chapter one, scene one, and it's a child's voice. So just keep that in mind while you're song casting. What if the Duffers are messing with us and they're just going to re-air that Kate Bush song, Running Up the Hill? Because it's a familiar song at this point. And an important one to the universe. Exactly. Leora, what's your dream song? And I don't know if this is from the 80s. I think it's from the 80s, but my dream song is always Gloria. Good one. (laughs) Always. Just I want it in every movie, actually. It's just the best hype song. Any start to any scene should be the song Gloria, I think. What if it was We Didn't Start the Fire? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The worst song ever. I mean, I love him, but like truly the worst song ever. (laughs) And a horrible video. Another little piece of delicious info about Stranger Things that we mentioned another week, but I did want to bring it up again because there's going to be a year's supply of Stranger Things Scoops Ahoy ice cream. It can be yours if the price is right. And by the price, I mean nothing, but there are rules over at todoom.com. Um, yes, you can win a year's supply, which is worth almost $500 worth of ice cream by going over to todoom.com and entering the contest. And you can do that through November 13th at 1159 p.m. In some other Netflix news, The Circle 
coming back, not just for season six, but for season seven as well. Season six will launch in spring 2024, and then we'll get to see season seven, obviously, after that. What's interesting is the show is moving to the United States for these seasons. Instead of being filmed in a small town in Northern England, these two seasons moving stateside to Atlanta. So I have watched the first few seasons of this. This show entertains me for sure. I also find it occasionally disturbing. And I'm thinking of one particular season where they had a mother and son serve as catfishers and have to try to flirt and be romantic with other contestants. And that had Oedipal Complex written all over it for me. And so that was tough. Oh, absolutely. I do think, though, that it is one of the shows that keeps you on your toes the entire time and one of the ones where I'm frustrated that it's batched in episodes because you really want the next batch right away. They really keep you on a cliffhanger. Share your frustrations with batched, especially as we're in the middle of um, the Great British Baking Show season and those come out one a week. And I'm hungry literally and figuratively watching that show because I'm hungry for more episodes and I'm hungry for the desserts that they're making on the screen. Oh, absolutely agree. I even get hungry for the reunion episodes of a lot of our favorite shows. I know we have a Selling Sunset reunion coming up, which I am so excited about. So as I'm sure you are too, Jessica. The Selling Sunset reunion is coming up November 15th, hosted by the one and only Tan France. I am very excited for that. I am both attracted to and repelled by Nicole, and I just don't know where I land. So I'm curious um, what she brings to the reunion. Oh, I am a diehard team Chriselle, which actually feels very antithetical to who I am, but I felt like she got it from all ends this season and she had to really defend herself every step of the way, which was entertaining to watch, but probably very hard to live, so. The Marilou Chriselle drama, that was tough. And and like you, Leora, I too was team Chriselle and I'm looking forward to seeing that rehashed in the reunion. That was some terrific accent work going with Marie Lou. I'm really impressed. I was going to say, especially knowing how offended she was in the show when people said her name wrong and Chriselle said her name wrong. I mean, Chriselle says her, her name like Mary Lou, which is a whole other name. Jessica, I also want to remind everyone of the urban legend that Chriselle was named after a gas station, which she has since debunked. But there was a rumor going around for a long time that she was born at a Shell station or something and that um, she was named after a friend named Chris and the Shell station. So Chriselle has had her own name journey. It's true. And by the way, when you say that was a rumor going around, I'm almost positive it was on her Wikipedia page. I thought you were going to say, I'm almost positive that I started it. (laughs) I I wish. I wish. I do want to mention that Netflix is going to host its first ever live sports event, Drive to Survive, and full swing athletes are teeing up in this all-star golf tournament that is coming right up Tuesday, November 14th. And like I said, streaming live beginning at 3 p.m. Pacific. Henry, tell us what we need to know. So there are pairs of Formula One drivers and PGA golfers who are going to pair up together. They're playing in Las Vegas. Listen, I know for you and me, it's sort of the blind leading the blind as we talk through this, but like, I am very excited. Like, I feels like very Battle of the Network stars to me, and which is a place that you and I can go together and very, very much appreciate. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I feel like Brooke Shields needs to be involved. Ted McGinley. Amario Lopez. Both Heather Locklear and Heather Thomas. 
listen, I don't mean to be like a development executive at Netflix, but I'm just saying I sort of think that as a tie in to Stranger Things, because it is their last season, because it is an 80s show, that perhaps there should be a spinoff of Battle of the Stranger Things stars. Like I'm I, I'm just I'm spitballing. We're just workshopping it here on now on Netflix. But I feel like there's a future in that. I'm going one step further than you. And I think it should actually be Battle of the Network stars within Netflix. And I want Imelda Staunton now that she's going to be off the crown, competing with Millie Bobby Brown in a shot putting competition. Finally, a sport I can get behind. (laughs) Yes, you're there. Up next, I'm going to be talking to John DeLillo, one of your fellow Tudum.com writers. We're going to be talking about The Killer, which is David Fincher's new movie, which is out tomorrow. But for now, I want to thank you so much, Leora Yashari and Henry Goldblatt, for joining me. Always a pleasure. David Fincher is back. His next film is The Killer. This film stars Michael Fassbender as the titular killer. It's reteaming of Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, and David Fincher. Obviously, I am so incredibly excited to talk to John DeLillo, a film writer at Tudum.com, about this movie. Okay, John, why don't you tell us the plot of The Killer? The killer really puts you inside this guy's head. It's uh, it's it starts out he is scoping out a joint in Paris for an assassination, and uh, you spend like the first 10, 15 minutes just going about his day to day, and uh, then something goes horribly wrong. He's a great assassin, but he doesn't he doesn't make the shot. Kind of a domino effect from there of like he's on the run. He's he's making his way through murder after murder after murder. Michael Fassbender is so unbelievably good in this role. A lot of the film, a lot of the script is inside his head. There's not, I mean, there are obviously interactions and scenes with multiple people, you know, throughout the film. But so much of the power of the movie, I thought, was when you hear Michael Fassbender thinking as the assassin. I think the movie's pretty funny, too, on on top of being incredibly tense. Um, And part of what's funny about it is the way you kind of see the contradictions between what he says and, and what he does. You know, he'll say, like, execution is everything. You got to prepare. And then he'll kind of just improvise his way through a scene. There's a great fight scene in the third act of the movie that is sort of just a down and dirty brawl. He, he does not do a lot of great preparation for that. Um, so part of the movie is is sort of seeing this guy unravel as he is trying to keep himself together in, in voiceover. One of the things that I thought was so interesting was we're seeing Michael Fassbender for the first time in a long time. He hasn't been in a lot of films lately. David Fincher, of course, recently did Mank, which is on Netflix, and he did Mindhunter. But we haven't seen him direct a thriller like this in many, many years. So it's this nice experience of getting to see these two people who we haven't really seen in this genre lately. Yeah, Michael Fassbender, of course, is racing in Europe. Uh, He's a race car driver now, which is very cool. Um, and David Fincher, um, this is sort of a return to his his airport thriller era, you know, the Gone Girls and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoos. Obviously, Mank was a years-long passion project. His dad wrote Mank before he passed away, and uh, that's a great movie. Watch that on Netflix, too. But um, this is definitely not a return to form, but a return to a sort of genre that we haven't seen from him in a while. There's really nothing like a David Fincher movie about people killing people, and this one fulfills pretty much everything that you could, you could ask for. Let's talk about some of the co-stars, in particular. 
particular, I want to single out Tilda Swinton. I definitely don't want to spoil who she is, but do you have any intel for us on how she got cast? Because I think there is a scene with Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton that will, at the end of the year, I think be on everyone's list of the best film scenes of 2023. It's a crazy scene because Fassbender is so cool and collected, and Tilda, who kind of has a reputation for that as an actor, is a little bit more undone in that scene. She's she's like, oh God, if I'm seeing this guy, not not a good thing for me. John, you interviewed Kate Adams, who did the costumes for the killer. What was her vision behind this? She worked with David on Mindhunter. She was the assistant costume designer on that. And then she threw her name into the hat for the killer when they were picking the costume designer for the killer. And what she told me was that what Fassbender says early on in the movie about dressing like a German tourist, that was sort of the guiding principle of the costume design. It wasn't in the script at the time, but it was the direction that David gave her. She went in that direction. They went through so many bucket hats. It's a tricky proposition because part of the uh, design of the character is like he wants to blend into the background. So you want to be memorable in terms of someone watching a film, but you, you don't want to be memorable in terms of the people within that movie not noticing an assassin. So they went through dozens upon dozens of, you know, Tommy Bahama shirts. But she did say that the beginning of her process was looking at a lot of photographs of Liam Gallagher in the 90s, which I thought was so funny. I think that does kind of come across. Um, and obviously Tilda, working with Tilda, she was thrilled to talk about because that's the opposite of the Fassbender costuming. It's like she gets to be a little glamorous in her one scene. Obviously David, infamously particular filmmaker, she went through so many different costumes. She shopped for costumes, she she went through mood boards, and she, she had a dress made for Tilda because she was like, I have Tilda's measurements, I, I really want Tilda to look her absolute best, and I, and I want it to be a unique dress that she wears in the scene. But she didn't expect it to go well because she thought at the end of the day, they're going to try on a bunch of different things. And, you know, my dress isn't going to be the, the first thing on her mind. The first thing Tilda does is say, what do you want me to wear? And Kate Adams says, uh, well, I did have this dress made for you. And Tilda puts it on. Uh, David takes one look at it and says, that's great. And they walk out of the room. So obviously the, the reputation of David Fincher as this hard taskmaster, you know, every once in a while, get it right in one try. Yeah, he's super chill. And by the way, that's literally the only time that's ever happened on a film set where like, you know, costume designer, director and actor, they're all like, oh, yeah, super chill. This is cool. Let's just go film. That is incredible. It's pretty amazing because there are other supporting people in the film who are in scenes that are set all over the world and everyone really does have their distinct look. So I really love the costumes. She honestly deserves an Oscar for, I will not say which character wears it or why it is important, but there is a character in the film wearing a Sub Pop t-shirt that for some reason is just so incredibly perfect and well-placed in this scene and in this film. FYC campaign, let's get it started. John, if you are a Smiths fan, this is the movie for you because the entire soundtrack is Smiths music. Yeah, there were other options that they presented. I, I think there was one variation where there was all 80s music instead of just all one all Smith stuff. But um, he said that he saw the killer is not really enjoying music, but just kind of using it as, as background noise, which I guess if you're a Smiths fan, maybe you're a little insulted, um, especially given the fact that this is the, a, a, a bloodthirsty serial killer um, mainlining the Smiths. What was behind that? I think what Fincher said is he just thought it was funny, which is kind of how I feel about a lot of the movies, that there are moments that are scary and tense, and then there are moments like at one point um, after the assassination goes wrong, Fassbender says, what would John Wilkes Booth do? And I just I just cracked up. I was like, what an insane thing to put in your movie in a good way. For all of the, the talk about Fincher as, as this infamously prepared and uh, r repetitive filmmaker, I think he kind of looks at something and he goes, mm, 
that would be funny. And that's how it turns out. It's a little bit of a just this strange contradiction. When you interviewed Andrew Kevin Walker, did he say anything about the tone? Because this film really threads a needle of being very gruesome at times. There's a lot of blood. I mean, the, the it's an assassin. It is about it's about a killer, uh, thus the title. And yet there is so much humor. There's so many funny moments in the movie. He talked about the killer as sort of an alien presence in the movie. Like he doesn't he doesn't fit in anywhere. They were very pointedly anti-James Bond in in terms of the glamour of the killer. So a lot of the humor in the movie kind of comes from the fact that, you know, he's flying coach. Uh, he's he's going to Amazon lockers. He's he's just kind of a guy trying to do his job, just like the rest of us, except a little bit more bloodthirsty. He's flying coach. <laughs> oh, the common people. One of the things that's so funny is Michael Fassbender's character of the killer. Every alias he uses is a nod to an old TV character. Was that something that Andrew thought of? What was behind that? Because it was so clever. And it's a little bit, if you know, you know. If you don't know your TV history, that's going to go right over your head. Well, this is something that came around when, when Andrew Kevin Walker was doing a polish on Fight Club. And they were writing up little name badges or things on sign-up sheets, at, uh, Edward Norton's character in the movie. And Fincher was like, why don't we use, let's say, I think the example he gave was uh, Dr. Zayas from Planet of the Apes. And so I think there was a there was a point that Andrew Kevin Walker said when he was writing The Killer, why don't we not have him say his name, but he's going to need to get tickets for planes, etc. Um, so why don't we go with authority figures from, from sitcoms? They're all so funny. It's such a clever way of adding humor to this pretty serious at times film. I mean, he is an assassin. He is like killing people and there are some pretty brutal and gruesome moments. And then he will go somewhere and he'll have a passport with like George Jefferson on it or something. Where do you think this fits into the overall David Fincher oeuvre if you're a fan of Fincher's? Well, as a fan of Fincher, I I would probably place it towards the upper half. Um, I think this is a really fun movie. It's not quite as speedy as you might think it is. It's a movie about an assassin, but it's not, it's not like The Gray Man, for example, another Netflix movie about an assassin. You're in his shoes. You're sitting in that WeWork. You're waiting for the right shot. And then when the right shot comes, maybe you miss it and then you're on a little bit of a worldwide chase. Yes, you are. I love this movie. The Killer is out tomorrow. David Fincher and Michael Fassbender. God, what a what a duo. John DeLillo from todoom.com. Thank you so much for joining me and telling me all about this film. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this episode. Again, The Killer is out tomorrow. And be sure to check out all of the great Geeked Week news at geekedweek.com. Also out this week is a new docuseries, Escaping Twin Flames, about, well, I guess you could say a cult of love, but you definitely might want to be single after you watch that series. And for more about that docuseries, listen to this week's episode of our sister podcast, You Can't Make This Up. Next week, we're going to be previewing part one of the new season of The Crown. See you next week. Thank you.